Colossians 3 and verse 16. We pick up from our study in last week, talking about the peace, or excuse me, the word of Christ as we ought to let it live or dwell in us richly. The word of Christ is uh, Christ's own uh, statement, not just the red letters. If you have a red letter edition Bible, it's not just those red letters that we ought to pay attention to and, and have special devotion to, but all of Scripture is given by God. It is God-breathed, and it is useful for us, especially as it teaches us about Jesus, it teaches us about his person and his work, who he is and what he's come to do, what he did come to do, and what he's coming again to do. And we have the implication of that. Having let that word of Christ dwell in us richly, we teach and admonish one another. We speak God's word to one another. Another aspect of or implication of that word of Christ dwelling in us is this study we'll see this morning, singing. We sing and we uh, use harmony, we use melody, we use lyrics, we use rhythm to let that word or, or practice demonstrate that that word is indwelling us because it's on our lips. We are so ready and given to song. Praise God. Well, let me read beginning of verse 15 through 17 this morning, I believe, in Colossians 3, and then we'll look at this carefully. Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word, or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. One of the things we've seen in these three verses, we saw it back in verse 15, we see it in 16, and it's verse 17, that we are to be thankful, we are to be grateful. Three times in three verses, Paul says gratitude is one of the key uh, hallmarks of a Christian, and that is to say that we are thankful not because we are given what we are owed, but we're given what we, we never owed or were, were, were uh, worthy of. In fact, we were given, we were not given what we were owed. Now that's kind of all backwards kind of thinking. Point is, we don't get what we deserve and we get what we don't deserve. We get mercy in face of condemnation and we get grace, just God heaping, as I mentioned in Ephesians 1.3, heaping every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ. And so we ought to be thankful. We've looked at that back in verse 15. What does that mean? And, and why even gratitude is, a, or the lack of gratitude, is a mark of unbelievers. Now, I know there are, are people that would be thankful and give thanks to this, that, and the other thing. And yet a thankfulness to God is, is not something that marks unbelievers at, at the heart level. Now, okay, and that is to say that uh, Romans 1 says people are ungrateful, and they do not give thanks to God. They do not praise the Creator. In fact, they turn and worship the creature, or the created things, and, and rather, instead of God the Father. Here, we should be marked by our gratitude, our thanksgiving, which is not just a thankful heart, but a, a mouth that says thank you to God and to others, recognizing again that we're, we're not given what we deserve, and we are given what we don't deserve. So we should be thankful. We looked at verse 16 last week. The word of Christ ought to dwell or make its residence at home uh, in our hearts individually, but also corporately. And he says that we ought to then work out that indwelling word through teaching and admonishing one another. In fact, if you were to look at this verse 
in, in uh, entirety, in its entirety, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And then he describes what does that look like. He gave us two examples or implications of that already, that we ought to teach and admonish one another. We looked at, at those ideas last time. If you remember, formative instruction is teaching, teaching things before people need that truth, but also admonishing or corrective instruction is that uh, teaching or information that something's not quite right in your life, whether your thinking or your behavior or your words or your outlook on life, something needs to change. And so admonition comes in where formative instruction taught us what is right. Corrective instruction helps us to get corrected back right and back in, in the right path that we ought to be walking. So teaching and admonishing one another, he says, are the natural implications of having the word of Christ richly dwelling in us and upon us. And we are so given to speak God's perspective on issues in life. You know, everybody speaks somebody's perspective, whether it's their own or somebody they've heard. Everybody is an informant. That's not the right word. Uh, influencer, a teacher, a, a counselor, uh, a, a cheerleader. We're always cheering something. It could be the latest movie. It could be the latest restaurant we discovered. It could be uh, the latest self-help, whatever that, that somebody came up with. We're always trying to help one another, but not always is that help helpful, if you, if you don't mind that redundancy. Sometimes the counsel, the, the advice that we offer to other people it's, well, as, as a certain radio personality says, it's worth what you paid for, which is nothing. It's, it's worth less. What, what people are spouting, and, and that's kind of pejorative, but what people offer as by means of advice, where's the scripture reference? Where is that coming from? Is that, as Paul has said throughout Colossians, is that God's wisdom, having full knowledge of his uh, glory, our knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's uh, Colossians 1 and verse 9, I think. Yeah, full knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Or is that something that you've come up with? Is that something that the angels maybe have, you know, the angels have revealed to you, that special knowledge only given to the, the elite, because that was an issue in Colossians, in, in the city of Colossae. And Paul says, no, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Let that be on your lips as you offer counsel, as you offer advice, as you challenge, as you teach, as you encourage one another. Let the word of Christ rule, or the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he says. So teaching and admonishing are two implications of this. The third one is actually here in the second part of the verse, singing. In fact, you can consider it this way. If you were to look at the beginning of this verse, it says, he says, teaching and admonishing one another. But notice how he says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. And then he says, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with, your, with gratefulness in your hearts to God. The question comes before us, is the means, the manner, the, the mode of our singing, or excuse me, the means, manner, mode of our teaching and admonishing, is that only lyrical? In other words, whenever we teach or admonish one another, should we be singing to one another? Should we have a sing-song voice? Maybe we do with our infants. We, you know, having a, a pitch change in our teaching or, or talking to children helps them to develop uh, attention and, and language skills and the ability to vocalize. But should we, should I be singing to you as I'm teaching? Should we, as we encourage one another, be singing? The point I'm trying to get at is, with all wisdom, we teach and admonish one another. Singing 
we do it with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, you don't have to sing all the time to teach and admonish one another, which is probably good news for a lot of us because we, we just were not given to that, but we ought to be. In fact, this is a command. If we let the word of Christ richly dwell within us, if we know the truth of what God has done for us, shouldn't that inspire some singing, some rejoicing? And we'll look at some different examples of singing. And sometimes it is rejoicing. Sometimes it is, as the psalmist would talk about, laments or sorrowful, mournful tunes where you realize lamentations is a sorrowful, it's a lament, right? It's called lamentations. And so that is a celebration not of joy and God's grace. It is a celebration of God's righteousness, which means God judged us. He, what he did was right. And he has, he has, when God wants to bless, he blesses. When God wants to curse, he will curse. And Jerusalem faced that in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came to des and destroyed them and carried off all the people into Babylon for 70 years. And so we see different examples of singing. The point in this verse, what I'm trying to bring out, is that our teaching and admonishing is with wisdom. We need God's wisdom. We need God's understanding, I mean, God's perspective on these issues of life. Again, people would say, well, I'm no theologian. And the next word is, but. I'm no theologian, but let me help you. Let me give you my perspective on what you ought to do in this, in this situation. You know, you've got this going on, this, that, and I think you ought to do this. Wait a minute. If you were to say, I'm no theologian, then you're lying. Everybody is a theologian. Everybody has a theology or a doctrine about God, who God is even Atheism has a statement about God. Basically, there is no God. Agnosticism would be a little bit more truthful, perhaps, and says, is there a God? I don't know. Is he there? I don't know. So that's a little bit more truthful. But for, for us, for the average Christian to say, you know, I'm no theologian, excuse me? For, for any Christian to say, I'm no theologian, means, well, you ought to stop and study. It's not like we can't develop a theology. It's not like we can't understand God or his word or what he expects of us, what he's done for us. We can become better theologians, but everybody has some doctrinal basis that carries us forward, helps us interpret life, helps us to plan for the future, helps us to anticipate what comes after death even. Everybody has a theology, and so we need to be careful to exercise God's wisdom. If anybody of you lacks wisdom, James 1 says, well, you're out of luck. No, that's not what it says. If, you're, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And God will graciously, graciously give to you uh, and does not chastise or, or say, well, you should know better. You, you bunch of hypocrites or you bunch of foolish people, you people of little faith, as Jesus commented several times to his disciples, but also said, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to give you another helper, a helper uh, that is, um, will lead you into all the truth, guide you into all the truth that God sent the Holy Spirit to his apostles, and the apostles wrote the New Testament, and we have the wisdom of God available to us. All that to say is our teaching and admonishing is with wisdom, but our singing here is with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We don't need to sing to teach and admonish. We can. It'd be fun to sing. In fact, our teaching, or our, excuse me, our singing does teach and it does admonish. It does rebuke us. Do you realize what we just sang in that facing a task unfinished? Um, raise us up from our slothful ease. We're, um, isn't that kind of a rebuke? Isn't that kind of a challenge that we would, would uh, certainly rise up and finish the work that God has granted us to do? 
But here he says, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness to your heart, in your hearts, to God. When Paul does this, and he does this a lot of times, he heaps on or, or just gathers together words that are, are essentially synonyms or the same uh, idea, just different words of ex- different ways of expressing it. Uh, sometimes there's a distinction, as he said, teaching and admonishing. Those are very similar ideas, but but have their own uh, unique characteristics. Here, when he uses these three words, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, yes, we could kind of parse that and, and, and differentiate this category and this category and this category. I don't know if that's his purpose or goal or, or intent for us to do that. I think he's saying, in, in all these different musical expressions, sing with gratitude to God from your heart, not just your vocal cords. You know, people talk about singing, sing from your diaphragm, right? Paul says, sing from your heart. If you sing from your heart, if you really mean it, in other words, you will sing. It might, may involve your hands, may involve your whole body as you sing to the Lord. Remember when David, King David brought the Ark of the Covenant into the tent he had prepared for it, not the tabernacle, because that had been kind of disassembled and, and not available. And before the temple had been built, he brought the Ark of the Covenant, and he was dressed in a linen ephod like the priests, and he was dancing with all his might, singing praise to God. You see how his wife treated him uh, in that context. He sang with his whole heart. He sang with his whole body because he rejoiced in God his Savior. Do you realize... The one person, now there are other people that wrote, but the one person who is called the sweet psalmist of Israel, which is what we have here, the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, is King David. King David, a man of bloodshed and war, I mean, a man's man, if you ever want to meet him in battle. I mean, just has mighty men around him and, uh, wow, an amazing fellow, but he had a heart toward God, a heart that was complete toward God, a heart that, that longed for God's righteousness, for God's, um, authority to be vindicated in his neighborhood as he exercised God's wrath even upon the Canaanites that were still inhabiting the land from the time of Joshua and the conquest. He exercised judgment upon the Philistines, beginning with that big tall guy, Goliath, and others as well. But David was given to song. He wrote many, dozens, scores of psalms to the praise of God. Some were laments, some were confessions. A lot of them were prayers to God. But when we talk about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we can talk about these songs, these melodies that are matched with lyrics. They're not just instrumental because it says we sing. Singing means we are using our our vocal cords and our words then to uh, accomplish these things that God wants through singing, and we'll look at those in just a moment. But he says that we can use these psalms. Again, these words mean a lot of the same thing, but just to give you maybe some possibly differentiating characteristics of, of psalms and hymns and the other things, is that a psalm is a song of praise. Now, that doesn't even include the psalms that are not so much songs of praise. Do you realize Lamentations? is written as a psalm. It's written, by the way, when you read Hebrew poetry, which a lot of the psalms are, also Proverbs, um, Ecclesiastes is, is poetry. It's not necessarily the words that rhyme, like in our, you know, what is that psalm, uh, the, the poet poem, excuse me, um, roses are red, violets are blue, and you fill in the rest of the lines, right? But the roses and, and these these words rhyme, they sound together. In Hebrew poetry, it's not the words that rhyme, it's the thoughts that rhyme. So sometimes there are 
uh, a thought will be stated and then it will be extended. Um, sometimes it will be stated and then uh, inverted or made the opposite. Uh, I'm saying Psalm 1, for example, that we can rejoice in the Word of God. We let that Word of God meditate. We meditate upon the Word of God, but then he gives the contrast that uh, the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So he's he's talking about the judgment of wicked people. But then in verse 6, he says, Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's a contrast that is stated there. If you back up early in that psalm, he talks about the the blessings of the man or the woman, boy and girl, who meditates upon God's word. He says it yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. So these thoughts are being added onto. He's building something out of that, or he's he's making the contrast. A lot of times in Proverbs, you can see that that uh, parallelism. It's called that either builds on an idea or states one thing and then states the opposite thing. Here. In Colossians 3.16, we see a parallel thought, and that is to say, when we let the word of Christ richly dwell within us, A, line A, we're going to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And then line B, singing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in our, um, in our hearts, to go, with gratefulness in your hearts to God. So these these ideas of, of uh, singing, praising God, or the implications of the word of Christ dwelling in us is that we would sing and glorify God. There are psalms, obviously, in the Bible. We have a whole book of, of uh, psalms, the Psalter, we could call it or refer to it. Sometimes in the New Testament, the Old Testament Psalter is being referred to, uh, various fulfillments of various prophecies. And this was to fulfill what the prophet said through the psalmist, uh, even Jesus and that forget if it was during the Emmaus walk or afterward, in Luke 24, when he said, how else would the law and the prophets and the Psalms be fulfilled unless I did it? Me, being that suffering servant, as Isaiah 53 says, or uh, Psalm uh, 22, I think it is, that says, uh, my intimate friend has risen up and 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 uh, defied me, and you know the one who ate my bread, and and so forth. That was Judas, of course. The fulfillment, even of the Psalms, uh, Acts tw- one and verse twenty talks about the Psalms. Acts thirteen, verse thirty-three talks about the Old Testament Psalms. There are also New Testament Psalms, which is to say, Psalms that were given through uh, prophets. First Corinthians fourteen and verse twenty-six says, you know, everybody has a Psalm. Well, okay, does it agree with the book? You know the, the the written word, and can we do things when you share a psalm in that prophetic um, uh, first century uh, church? Can can uh, you do it decently and in order? First Corinthians Corinthians would teach us that uh, principle. So these psalms are mentioned here, uh, whether it's Old Testament psalms or these New Testament psalms. It's a psalm of praise to God. Here we also have hymns, and this is one example. Actually, both examples. Psalm, our English word psalm, comes from the Greek word. Psalm and hymns comes from the Greek word hymns. It's spelled a little bit differently. The the root is the basic, the same idea. And lest you think, well, a, a psalm is a song of praise. That's what one dictionary uh, defines it. A hymn is a song with religious content, which is not much different. So I mean, okay, you can kind of you know split hairs and kind of thing on that. And those are, would be both Old Testament uh, hymns, also New Testament psalm songs that are mentioned. There's a a uh, the verbal form of this, the action uh, word that cont- uh, relates to this hymns. 
these hymns is mentioned when Jesus is in the upper room, and after singing a hymn, they went out. Matthew and Mark both record that, that Jesus sang a, a song. It could have been Psalm 118, maybe, part of the, the, the Hillel, uh, psalm of praise to God and announcing his uh, deliverance and his help. It could be something different, perhaps. Do you remember when Paul and Silas were in prison in, you know, he was in prison a lot, by the way. We just read in Acts 22, he's going to prison. But in Philippi, he was in prison and having been beaten and mistreated and and all kind of misused, mis, uh, uh, he and his compatriot Silas were praying, it's about midnight, and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And you read the rest of the story. How did that, how did God use that to bring salvation to the, not just the other prisoners, but the head guy, the chief jailer there in Philippi? Salvation came to his house because of uh, Paul and Silas and their testimony of praise to God. Also, we see that Jesus is the one who's singing in Hebrews 2 and verse 12, which is quoting Psalm 22 and verse 22. I, Jesus, will recount your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will sing your praise. I will recount your name to my brothers. Guess who's referred to as brothers? Jesus is saying that about us, those who are brought into his family. He says, in the midst of the assembly, which is the same idea as a congregation or a a group that's gathered together, I, Jesus, will sing your praise. I will proclaim the excellencies of my God forever, he says. I didn't added that last line. So we have these psalms and hymns, these these musical, lyrical, melodic statements about God, about our experience, about our relationship with God. This last word mentioned here, songs, is uh, pretty generic. It doesn't even have anything to do with God necessarily. By By definition, it's just Again, a, a definition offered a particular melodic pattern with verbal content. Man, it's amazing. If you want to get a job as a dictionary writer, it's a particular melodic pattern. So there's a melody up and down, changes pitch, and even a, a pattern. So there's a rhythm to it. There's maybe there's some repetition, maybe there's some contrast, maybe there's and, you know, all these different things musically going on, but it has words. It has verbal content. There's lyrics that goes along with it. In other words, we can't just have uh, an interpretation. You know, there are a lot of interpretations on a theme that would take a a melodic pattern in in great musical uh, history and then uh, kind of interpret it and and make it. That's wonderful. Enjoy it and do it yourself. But a song, if we sing, has to have words. Are there words with this song that you might be thinking of? It's an instrumental arrangement. Um, we were listening to a song, Gesù Bambino, Little, Little Baby Jesus. Uh, there are words to that song. It's in Italian. We heard it on the radio today. But what are those words? What are you singing about? What are you celebrating? What are you praising? What are you rejoicing in? Do you know the most times this word, songs, is used is actually in Revelation. Revelation uh, 5 and 14 and 15 also all speak about singing or songs, singing songs of praise to God. And especially it says singing a new song to God. Verse uh, Revelation 15 and verse 9, they sang a new song. Revelation 14 and verse 3, they sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And by the way, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Revelation 15 also says they sang the song of Moses. Now, a lot of times we don't 
think of Moses being a song leader or a singer or a songwriter even, but it says here that they sang the song of Moses and the uh, Moses, the slave of God, and the song of the Lamb. Well, what's that song? Read Revelation 15 to find out. But I think there are, there are actually three songs mentioned in relation to Moses. The first one, in fact, the first instance of singing, maybe apart from the angels singing at the creation of the world, the first evidence of human singing is in Exodus 15. Exodus 15 is when the Israelites had crossed not over or around, but through the Red Sea, and then God judged all the Egyptian army. In fact, the song repeats the, you know, the refrain of the song is, God has cast the horse and rider into the midst of the sea. I mean, that was a celebration. You realize they could have been wiped out right there on the, on the, they just left Egypt. They're, they're, they're caught. They're trapped. God provided a great deliverance and they sang. They sang, by the way, on the other side of the ocean or the other side of the sea, watching these little, um, the destruction of the Egyptian army, and they sang to God's praise. So that's the first song of Moses. Another song is in the at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 32, I think is the actual song uh, mentioned, but it's mentioned beginning of verse in uh, chapter 31, and then, of course, in into chapter 32. The song of Moses, which he taught to the Israelites there just before they crossed into the promised land, and a lot of it a lot of the themes there are mentioned also in that song of Moses. They, the uh, folks at the end time in Revelation 15 will speak about the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the judgment of God upon his enemies, the deliverance, the amazing, supernatural, miraculous deliverance that God provides for his people. That characterizes the song of Moses that uh, is there. The third one, third example of a song of Moses is a psalm written in our Psalter, that's Psalm 90. And it said, a song of Moses. And you can read one of the one of the famous lines is, um, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And also that that psalm also talks about, you know, as for man, his days are are uh, 70 or perhaps due to strength, 80 years. And but they're full of you can read about Psalm 90 is a song of Moses. Notice it says, again, to differentiate this from just any particular, how do you say, melodic particular melodic pattern with verbal content. This is a spiritual song. This is a spirit, not a, a spiritual that we would talk about, but a spiritual song. That is to say, it is talking about God. It is talking about spiritual things. It is spoken or, or sung by spiritual people, which is to say Christians, also mature. There's, there's some, especially in 1 Corinthians, he talks about uh, you who are spiritual, but also I can't speak as to spiritual people, but as immature as babes in Christ. You guys haven't matured in as, as you ought to have matured. So there is, is one sense in which all Christians are spiritual. Another sense in which the spiritual ones among us are the mature, godly, letting the word of Christ richly dwell within them kind of people. These are spiritual psalms. You, I've mentioned this before, but in Paul's letter to the Colossians, Paul, he does not mention much about the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's a reference back in uh, Colossians. Um, he talks about your love in the Spirit. Is that verse 3, maybe? Verse 4, verse 5, I, where is it? Somewhere at the beginning. It's not jumping out to me right now. But he says your love in the Spirit. The question is, is that a capital S Spirit? Or is that a lowercase human Spirit? Because he also talks about uh, the... Um, in verse 9, filled with the full knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, these spiritual songs he talks about, 
there's another, there's a fourth example, I don't remember which one it is, where he talks about not the Holy Spirit necessarily, but spiritual as opposed to physical, as opposed to fleshly. And here he's talking about a spiritual song, that which relates to God, that which is uh, from God, that which is informed by our relationship with God, that which is a evident an evidence of our communion with God. It is a spiritual kind of a song. He says going forward here, that that is the content of our singing. How do we do it then? He says with gratefulness, with gratefulness in our hearts. Because of what God has done, so much of, of singing in Scripture is a song of praise, of adoration, of, of thanksgiving. God, you delivered me. Now, again, we're reading in Lamentations. There's not a lot of gratitude in that. There will be, because we'll see in, in chapter 3, one of the most famous psalms and songs in our Christian church history is, Great is thy faithfulness. Well, that comes from, your mercies are new every morning. That comes from Lamentations 3. So there is, there's a, there's a, a thread of hope, of trust, of confidence in God, even in the midst of suffering and destruction and judgment. Spiritual songs reflect the, the full experience that we have as Christians. Sometimes on the mountaintop, sometimes in the, in the valley bottom, sometimes as Jonah prayed from the belly of the whale at the, at the roots of the mountains down below, we can sing to God. We always sing with, with gratefulness because Again, God has not given us what we deserve for in Christ, and he gives us what we don't deserve, so rich and so free. And so we give thanks to God. We praise him. It's not something that is forced upon us. It's not something that is, you know, we're looking around and we say, well, other people are doing this. I guess I might as well, I don't want to be the odd man out. I better fit in. No, this ought to come from our hearts. It ought to come individually as a, a personal expression of devotion to God. Notice it says, we sing in our, with gratefulness of hearts to God. He is the audience, and we often say, "Well, I, you know, I don't have a voice for for singing, or, or you know, some people would go so far as I have a a face for radio." So much of radio now is broadcast on TV; it's recorded or it's on YouTube. The point is, I don't have a voice for singing. That's no excuse. Some people would say, "You know, I couldn't carry a tune in the bag." In other words, I, I don't have any skill musically. I don't. I I don't know what to sing. Sing. You're singing to God. You know, God loves, and we often say this, God loves a cheerful voice. At least be cheerful about it. Don't argue and harumph and say, well, I could never. Are you thankful? Are you thankful that God just delivered you? Do you realize what those Israelites sang on the other side of the Red Sea? Whoa, God, you delivered us. Moses sang, Miriam sang, they got the tambourines, they got the cymbals and, and all these things because God had just delivered them. Paul has spent this whole letter speaking about what God has done through Christ in saving us, delivering us from our sin. Could we be motivated to sing? Could we sing with gratefulness in our hearts to God? Do we have anything to be thankful for? Do we need to sit down and count our blessings? We ought to. Every time we come to uh, this, this position of praise, in fact, our thanksgiving, our gratitude in our hearts ought to drive us to saying thank you. Thank you to God. Thank you to those who whom God has used in our lives and ministering his grace to us. We are thankful people. Notice again, it says we give this singing, this praise to God, which again underscores the idea that our teaching and admonishing is with all wisdom. It doesn't require us any time that we are teaching and admonishing that we have to do with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We sing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving or gratitude in our hearts 
to God. He is the audience. He is the one that we are not, it's not even a performance, by the way. It's not even something that we do for, for God to notice us, for us to get claps. Oh, that was a good psalm, uh, God would say to us. No, we do it for his praise. We do it for his glory. We do it so that people would, would direct their attention not to me, the musician, the, the, the congregation. It would direct people's uh, hearts and minds to God himself. Well, a few ideas as we wrap up our, our study in, in this verse about singing. We've talked about it uh, in various times, but some maybe some categorized or systematic uh, statements about uh, singing and some implications about church music and how, you know, what kind of music ought we have in the church meeting. First of all, it's important to realize that God himself sings. We saw the example at the Last Supper when Jesus was there with his disciples and having having sung a hymn or, or well, after having sung a hymn, they went out and, and then, of course, went to the Garden of Gethsemane. But in Zephaniah 3 and verse 17, Zephaniah is a prophet, uh, one of the minor prophets, and he says, uh, Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will be joyful over you with gladness. He will be quiet, quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with joyful singing. This is God himself, and a couple different ways it talks about rejoicing. Uh, and rejoicing has the idea of, uh, of a, a shout of um, exultation or, or praise or uh, just a magnificent statement. Wow. Uh, and then joyful singing, a, a, a melodic pattern that is, is verbal. And God himself is doing that over us. Now, he's celebrating his righteousness, his salvation. He is the mighty one who will save, and he rejoices that he can save the likes of us and bring us into his presence. We also see the example in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah records a song, and it's God speaking. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, Isaiah, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My my well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. This is God speaking about Israel and how God protected it and provided for it and would expect a, a fruitful a harvest from that, and there was nothing, nothing that they produced. And so what was the judgment that came upon that that vineyard? You can read about it in Isaiah 5, and I think Jesus refers to that idea also in one of his parables about a, uh, a vineyard owner who entrusted that vineyard to other people to manage it and care for it, expecting some of the fruit thereof, and that didn't happen so well. And even the the, the story goes on and says, the vineyard owner even sent his own son to the managers, expecting him to be honored and, and, and obeyed and so forth. No, they killed the son. Whoa. From Isaiah 5 into that parable Jesus told, we see the whole history of God's redemption. He expected fruit out of his people. They didn't. God sent his son to get fruit out of the people, and it didn't happen. They killed him. But... God raised him up. This is kind of the end of that story. God raised him up and brought judgment upon those that that uh, crucified him, but also mercy for those who would repent and, and trust in him. The point here is that God sings. God himself sings. Do you know the scripture commands singing? We see it in this verse, Colossians 3.16, singing uh, with thanks, uh, thanksgiving or gratefulness in our hearts to God. But also the command is repeated. We could look at so many different psalms. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9, the command is, Sing to him, sing praises to him, muse or, or think about, meditate upon all his wondrous deeds. A lot of our singing ought to reflect upon what God has done. Now, if you were to read some of the Psalms, 
there are many, of course, that would extol God in his character, who he is, but also in his works. There are many that would sing about a personal experience. Uh, Psalm 32, when I kept silent about my sin, I wasted away as with the fever heat of summer. Then I confessed my sin, and you forgave me of all my guilt and cleansed me. So there is that more of a subjective experience of, of grace, of, of condemnation or conviction of sin. But then you read, uh, like Psalm 100, that uh, you know, praise God, and there's, there's this brief little thing, we're the sheep of his pasture, and all that kind of wonderful ideas expressing God's care, his wonderful thing. Or Psalm 119, that extols the virtues of God's law. You know, law of the Lord, that's Psalm 19. Psalm 119, ex- so many different ways, 176 different ways, it talks about the characteristics of the Word of God and how it uh, makes um, the the young man. How does a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your Word? That's what the Word is for. And so Psalm 119 uh, is is a fulfillment of this idea of singing, the command of singing. Psalm 33 and verse three says, "Sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a loud shout." Sometimes we think new songs are trash, or it's the old songs that are trash. Wait a minute. We need to sing a new song to the Lord. Well, both of those are are right and wrong because, yes, there's some just empty, vapid, you know, just not worthwhile to sing old songs. And there are some new songs that fit that category as well. The point is, what's the content? What is being being celebrated? And again, we'll look at some characteristics of excellent church music here in just a moment. But the command to sing is, is throughout Scripture. Uh, also in James, you know, multiple Old Testament examples, but also James uh, 5 and verse 13 says, If anyone among you is anyone among you suffering, then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. A lot of times we sing singing has to do with cheerfulness or uh, gratitude or joy. There are plenty of examples where singing is 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 not that way, but but a lot of times that the, the overflow of a thankful heart erupts in singing praise to God. What does singing do? It praises or worships God. Uh, that first example of human singing in Exodus 15, I will sing to Yahweh for he is highly exalted, the horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. You think, wow, that's kind of shocking. That's kind of violent, is it? And yet it's a praise to Yahweh, the deliverer, the God who is highly exalted over, I mean, Egypt was the cat's meow back in that day, the you know top dog on the, I'm mixing my metaphors. Top dog in the totem pole. I was going to say, but uh, the the he is he, the, the Egyptian pharaoh was that, and yet God had brought him down bit by bit, decimated. You know, decimated means ten, right? Ten plagues. He was decimated through the course of that. All of Egypt was humbled and brought low, and God was exalted over all those gods of of the Egyptians, and He is highly exalted. First Chronicles 16 again says, Sing to Yahweh all the earth. Proclaim good news of his salvation from day to day. Recount his glory among the nations, his wondrous deeds among all the peoples. For great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised. He is more fearsome than all gods. And you can read on throughout that wonderful song of praise to God. He says, Give thanks to your holy name and revel in your praise. You know, singing helps us to speak what's on our minds. Sometimes we don't know how to express ourselves well. We don't know how to put into words the thoughts, the feelings, the the emotions that we have going on in us. But music is able to help us 
put in, in some kind of a reasonable, cogent fashion these thoughts that are going through our minds. You know, even that music can calm or bring peace to the human spirit. You remember how the first meeting of Saul and David, King Saul and his young man David, was because David was a skilled musician and brought peace or, or a calming influence upon Saul. You remember the, the, the situation that Saul was in there in 1 Samuel 16. But music can calm the, the human spirit. Music can inspire dancing or mourning. You remember how Jesus said, you know, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and did not mourn. The point is, music can, can lead to rejoicing, dancing. It can also inspire mourning or, or facilitate that, uh, the heights and depths of the human experience. A songwriter, a skilled songwriter, is able to capture in, in very few words a lot of times. And, and a lot of times, if the songwriter is also the musician, the, the one who writes the music, is able to buttress the idea of, of the lyric in the musical phrase or the, the counter melody or the, the rhythm of how that's going. Music is such a powerful way to communicate. Uh, that you can express a variety of human experience. You can express the joy and the sorrow. You can express uh, the fellowship that we enjoy or the isolation, the the exclusion. You know, my friends have forsaken me kind of thing. You can express hope and also despair. And music is so powerful. Uh, music, the, the musicality, the, the notes and the intonation, the rhythm uh, can uphold and intensify the lyrics that we are uh, singing uh, singing also excites religious affections. This is a term out of Jonathan Edwards uh, that he speaks about religious affections, not just emotions and, and uh, sentimentality, but, but when he talks about affections, he says desires, inclinations, the things that you pursue in life, the, the, uh, the volition or the willful uh, moving toward something. And also emotions, I'm not saying you, we need to be passive, uh, uh, you know, passionless people. But he says in his religious affections, quoting, he says, the duty of singing praises to God, the duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than prose and do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. Why can't we just write letters to God? He wants singing. He wants the versification. He wants not just prose, not just you know line upon line this way, but music and and uh, and the the. It is interesting how God has created us all in His image, but different. We all have. Um, when I was in high school, we published a, a literary. Uh, what we call the lit book, literary book. It was a collection, of, a compendium of various student writings and, and uh, you know, essays and poetry and, and reviews and different things. And I had the privilege of titling it. And I wanted to give the title Refractions. That's what it was titled because each student was refracting truth, knowledge, science in different ways, in their own personal experience. Some, again, were witty. Uh, my cousin wrote a, a witty uh, something or other. Um, and... and but each person was refracting the truth of God. This is what we can do through uh, uh, pitch changes, rhythm changes, uh, the, the tempo, the, the speed of a song, which, and even the retardando, the slowing it at the end, or, or you know, the swelling to the, to the great conclusion, or the, 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 uh, the seventh uh, 
you know, a minor seventh or just all these different wonderful musical things. God is a God of creativity and he delights in variation. He delights you look outside, look at the birds. Wow, who would have thought? Or the beetles or the bats. How can there be so many different variety of bats? I mean, who can think of all these things? And yet God is doing it. Is it no wonder that we should have different kinds of music? It's, it's, it's okay. We should pursue these things. When he talks about, I quoted Jonathan Edwards, but um, when we talk about emotional uh, experiences, we need to be not negating or, or suppressing emotionalism, but, but recognizing the dangers of being uh, uh, driven overly much by emotion. Because sometimes music can, as we as we said, we saw, you know, I sang the, or played the flute for you and did not dance. I, I sang a dirge for you did not mourn. Music can manipulate, but but motivate or carry us along into things that maybe we had no intention of getting into. A, a means of thinking, our mode of thinking, of celebration or despair or, or celebrating isolation that I'm alone in this world. I have nobody. I got nobody in this world. Songs are very powerful. We need to make sure that we check where is this music taking us, whether the, the, the musicality, the notes and the rhythm and all that, or the lyrics. What are these lyrics saying? Where's God in this? How can we guard against being overly emotional in our expression of praise or the expression of the human experience? Because uh, intense emotions can carry us in, in the wrong directions. When our emotions need to be channeled and directed and, and shepherded and guarded and guided toward God, not away from God. Emotions can help us to express a genuine spiritual reality, but only when it's a genuine spiritual reality. A lot of these songs, even in the church, but especially in the world, they're, they're leading us in a, in, a, in a mode of thinking and a, a pattern of thinking that, that takes us farther away from Christ and his cross and his salvation and the lifting us out of despair and, and isolation and, and hopelessness and just cements that and confirms that. We need to sing so that our religious affections for God, our desire for him, are, is more fully realized. Well, a few more examples and then we'll be done. Singing is a helpful aid to memorizing. You know, how much when you add a lyric, I mean, if I were to, to hum a tune of one of these, you know, popular commercials from, from whatever, you would be able to give me the manufacturer, the, the, the product that is being offered. You know, this is a, even just a little three word or three, Pattern note change. You, oh, that you're talking about. Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. How does that even work? Because music is powerful. It aids in, in memorizing things. The rhythm, the, the pitch changes. A lot of times, and, and it's interesting, this new uh, Legacy Standard Bible identifies, even in Lamentations, how there is a, a structure to what the, Jeremiah is, is, is stating there. And that is to say, each little chunk of verses starts with the same Hebrew letter. That's an aid to memorization because you know, okay, what letter am I on? I'm Vav. Okay, so and each each line starts with Vav or Aleph or these different letters. That A is in memorization. Psalm 119 is the same way, um, and and others of the Psalms and, and outside the Psalms, an aid of memorization, even in the way that it's structured. But also when you add when you match a lyric with a musical pattern. It helps us to memorize things. It helps us to internalize these things. When we have a, a rhythm, it helps us to know and uh, and uh, remember and even speak. One person, you know, Bob Coughlin, who's a great musician, Sovereign Grace uh, Ministries, and 
has a great musical heritage uh, and, and work. But he says, you know, I even struggle. He, this is uh, Bob Coughlin saying, I even struggle memorizing lyrics. And what I found helpful is when I, I want to sing from my heart, and when I'm singing a song, even which I know, or some, especially when I don't know, I want to not just sing from the book or from the screen or, or from your phone or whatever. Sometimes I will look at the whole line and I'll, and even line by line, and then I'll, I'll look away. So I don't, I'm not reading, not singing from the book. I'm singing from my heart, but then I have to go back and look. What's the next line? Okay. We sing it and we go on and we internalize the truths that are being sung about and celebrated in this way. Singing helps with memory. Singing also uh, teaches. It edifies one another. As we saw, see in this verse, uh, it's not exclusively the way that we teach and admonish, but it is helpful. I mean, there's so much in Scripture. Uh, so many uh, times in the Psalms we say, hey, come, let us sing praises to God. Come, surely God is good to Israel. There are all kinds, Psalm 73, there are all kinds of summons or or callings to pray. Come on, let us worship God. And then in the course of that worship, we're taught, we're admonished, we are corrected in our thinking. Uh, other psalms you could look at as well. You know, singing, whether in the church or outside the church, singing affirms unity. You look at people singing, and there's some measure of unity, some measure of like-mindedness, of shared experience between them. Singing binds us together. It, it celebrates shared truths, shared experiences, shared beliefs. Um, singing can be done by soloists, uh, groups, of ensembles, a whole congregation. Uh, it can be done by a, a leader. It can be done without a leader. It can be done with instruments, without instruments. You see all kinds of examples throughout Scripture. In that way. Well, just a few. I don't know how many I have here. Just some characteristics of excellent church music that we can consider from this verse, but also all of Scripture. And then we really will be done. Characteristics of excellent church music. The melody is easy to sing. It needs to be easy to sing in a, in a congregational setting. This is what I'm talking about. Church music needs to be an easy to sing melody. It's not one of these inherently just syncopated and, and I'm not sure if I'm being sing now oh there's a rest and I'm the one singing out or how do we do all this how do we do all this singing so much of, of modern church music is more written for uh, bands or, or praise leaders it's not written so much for the congregation to pick up on it's not an exclusive statement but just saying the melody is easy to sing the melody is easy to remember it's not something that okay what do I go up or down and it just it, it flows it's a natural thing beautiful music you almost anticipate we're rising, we we grow in in, in volume, uh, crescendo, decrescendo, or, you know, slow down or, or go fast. Uh, the music ought to reflect the culture of the church. If you were to look at uh, different churches, different congregations, there are different cultural makeups of these different churches. You, you sing. Uh, songs with a church in New England or a church in Taiwan or South Africa or England. There, there are different expressions, different cultural intonation, the, the pattern. What are they doing with their hands even? Uh, how do they sing? Is it, is it a responsive kind of a uh, antiphonal uh, thing? There are different cultural expressions of music. And I think that the, the, um, the culture of the church ought to determine what kind of music is, is, uh, is used in that congregation. Talking again about the musical music or the musical accompaniment of music of of singing, that the accompaniment supports but does not overwhelm the singers. It's not just about the instrumentation. It's not just about the melody or the the counter melody, the harmony. It's not just about the rhythm. It's about the words. And so the the music carries forward the words that we offer to one another, and that is what we need to focus on. 
Is God praised in symbols? Mm-hmm. It's all 150. You know, bang those symbols to the glory of God. You know, the Christmas song, uh, the little drummer boy, I didn't have anything else to give him, so I, I played. And he liked it. He smiled at me. Right? And so any kind of instrumentation can do that. But we need lyrics. The words, going from music to the words. Music, excuse me, the, the words are memorable. And they're, they're easy to remember. They're, they're uh, comprehensible. They're not difficult. They're not all these, you know, Asian words. The, uh, we can sing about justification, sanctification, all adoption. We can sing about that. But is there another way to say it? God saved me. He delivered it from all my sins. He made me righteous in Christ. Are the words memorable? And are they worthy of memorizing? Are they worthy of memorizing? Should we remember that psalm or should we sing it and then never sing it again? That's really not worth our time or God's time. Is it focused more on objective truth than subjective emotion or response? Now, you have to take that in context. We want to focus on objective truth. What are we singing about God? But also we sing from our hearts. We sing from our personal experience. Psalm 32 or Psalm 51 uh, that David says, uh, I've sinned against you. And you only, and so you're right, and you're just your judgment upon me. And he, but then by the end of Psalm 51, he says, "Come on, everybody, let's rejoice in God. He is the one who saved me, me, the sinner." And so we we focus on objective truth, but also from our own personal experience. That's why psalm, good psalms songs help us to express the full um, range of our of our experience. In fact, that's the final characteristic. The words teach the depth of Scripture, a multitude of events. People, experiences, emotions, doctrines, or truths that we we don't just sing uh, the same songs every Sunday. Do you know? I think it's uh, Charles Wesley who wrote over. Can you imagine? We have four hundred hymns, I think, in our, our hymnal. He wrote over sixty five hundred hymns. Charles Wesley. What, what do you need sixty five hundred hymns for? We don't sing all those, but he we he gave those for the benefit of the church, for the praising of God, for the edification of the body for the full expression of creation, of the fall of Tower of Babel. I, mean, I don't know what all he's, he's written about, the experience of the kings of Israel, uh, the, the, certainly the, the life of our Lord Jesus in his incarnation, in his, in his life. We need the full expression of, of truth, of, of human experience and emotion in our singing so that we can certainly sing with gratefulness in our hearts to God. God is the one who gives us the song, he is the one who is worthy of our praise or adoration, and we need to help one another to get ready for that eventuality. When we're in God's presence, he wants singing. He wants new songs. He wants songs of praise to him. He wants songs celebrating the Lamb of God. He wants us to sing. We'll have opportunity to sing in just a moment, but first we pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for the truth of your word and how we can sing it and how we can celebrate your grace, your life, your mercy upon us. We are grateful for the um, wonderful musicians we have enjoyed throughout history, maybe starting with Moses and Miriam back um, a long time ago, but of course David as well and and. Uh, Solomon even wrote a song and a psalm and, and others, even in our modern age, we pray that we would be given to sing with uh, thanksgiving or gratefulness in our hearts to you. We pray that you'd help us to encourage one another, to build each other up, to express and to use other songwriters' expression of joy and of sorrow and of hope and of triumph and of victory or defeat. 
and to celebrate that you are faithful and active and loving and kind and all these things. We are grateful that you would even listen to us and you, you delight in the prayers and the songs and, and devotion of your servants. That's just amazing how we who were used to be used to be enemies and at enmity can be brought near by the blood of Christ. Please help us to rejoice in that new position and to sing praises to you. We pray in his name. Amen.